Well, good morning to all of you at Calvary Souderton, and good morning to all of you folks at Calvary Quakertown. It's good to be with you all this morning. And I'm really excited because we're starting a new series today, CWJS. Now, there are some alternate facts circulating as to what those letters stand for. So let me clear up any confusion right out of the chute. Those letters mean Charles was just spectacular. No, 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 that's not true. That, that, that's an alternative fact. They really mean Carlos was just so-so. That's what they mean. No, no, no. They really mean that our mission is to continue what Jesus started. Now, you've seen those stickers around a lot of places. In fact, we've got a sampling up here of some of them. Uh, there you see uh, 26.2. How many of you have ever run a marathon? Raise your hand. Wow, we got a few sick folks with us this morning. Yeah. For those of you that can't quite do a marathon, there's 13.1. That's a half marathon. Then there's my running one up there, 0.0. And I'm going to get there as fast as you are without running. And then you have the old ichthus, that little fish, right? Ichthus in Greek is the word for fish. And I'm not sure if you realize, but the fish symbol became the symbol for Christianity because if you take each of the letters... In the Greek word for fish, ichthus, the letters spell out Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. And so that's what the ichthus means. Well, there are some people that don't like the biblical perspective on creation. And so there you see Darwin kind of eating the little ichthus thing. And then you've got uh, Outer Banks. Maybe that's how it all started. And then you have a message that uh, we try to promote here at Calvary Church, and that's to think more. Stupid less. That would be a good thing, right? And that's why we get together, to share wisdom. And for all of you from Jersey, Jersey girls don't pump gas. In fact, it's illegal to pump gas over there. Well, those are all the labels, but the label that we're using for the series is that we're continuing what Jesus started. And you know, it really is a good reminder, periodically, regularly, to remind ourselves that that is our mission. So let me remind all of you, in case you forgot, Our mission in life is not to accumulate as much stuff as we can. That's not the mission. Our mission in being here is not to create, develop a killer resume. That's not the mission. The mission is not to keep yourself as fit and attractive as you... Oh, you don't have that one. Uh, But our mission is to continue what Jesus... That's what we're about. And so all of the other things of life need to be secondary to the main thing of continuing what Jesus started. Now, what we're going to do for the next couple of months, we're going to kind of work with some themes, maybe not right through, but we're going to work with some themes from 2 Timothy. Now, you may never have read that little book in the New Testament before, but I know that you know what 2 Timothy basically is about if you've been around Calvary Church. Maybe the theme verse for 2 Timothy is in chapter 2, verse 2. And that verse goes something like this. Paul writing to Timothy, right? Timothy, the things you heard from me, Paul to Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust those things to reliable people who will in turn tell others also. So we've used that verse to talk about our relay race of faith, right? We've received the baton. We need to run well and pass the baton. So as, we're always, as we should always be thinking about succession, uh, making sure we hold the baton well, run well, and pass the baton, we thought, what better book to look at than 2 Timothy 
that's all about passing the baton and running well. Now, I hope you were listening because uh, as we start, you know, I'm an old teacher, right? So we're going to have a little pre-test, and maybe at the end we'll do a post-test. Are you ready? All right, here are a couple questions. You can, don't yell out the answer. I'll, ask you, I'll tell you what to do in a minute. So here are a couple questions about 2 Timothy before we read some of it. And number one, who wrote 2 Timothy? So don't yell it out. Tell the person next to you who wrote it. All right, who wrote it? Paul wrote it. Now that's a little confusing, I know, right? Because some letters in the New Testament have the title of the author. So when you're reading James, that's not to James, that's written by James. When you're reading Jude, Jude wrote that letter, right? When you're reading 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, John wrote those letters. Well, other letters were written by someone else. Okay, then, to whom was 2nd Timothy written? You should get this one out, right? That's Timothy, right? So Paul writing to Timothy. And the two there isn't T-O, that's the number two, because he wrote a previous one, 1st Timothy, before that. All right, now here, here's another question related to uh, Timothy. What commendation does Paul give to Timothy in the early part of the book? Don't you know that? What commendation does he He says, Timothy, you're doing really, really well here. Tuck that away in the back of your mind. You got an idea? How about this one? What flaw does Paul mention early in the letter that Timothy has? Yeah, Paul's a good teacher, right? A really good mentor. Timothy, you're doing really, really well here. Timothy, you're bad over here. Let me help you out on this one. Both things, all right? Now, with those questions in your mind, I'm going to read the first uh, number of verses from 2 Timothy. So if you have your Bibles, you can pull it out. If you have your phone, fire it up. Go to Version. If you're using a tablet or something like that, you should already be there. And follow along as I read the beginning of 2 Timothy. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus to Timothy, my dear son. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit of God does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel I am appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. 
Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phrygillus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. We'll stop there. All right, so what we're going to do, we're going to kind of work through the beginning of the letter, tease out some of the main ideas there, and then we'll kind of understand the players, the landscape, so the rest of the series will kind of make sense. First of all, like other New Testament letters, if you've ever received or written an email, you know better about how New Testament letters were written than you do that if you handwrite letters. I'm not sure anybody handwrites a letter anymore. But the New Testament letters follow our email pattern. They don't follow the actual handwritten letter pattern. So, for example, when you send an email, the first thing you notice is who it's from. That's how an ancient letter was written, right? From Paul to Timothy. Now, the from comes first in email so that you know who sent it to you, so you know if you should delete it or read it. Well, I'm not sure what exactly Timothy was going to do with it, but from Paul goes first, secondly to Timothy, and then right after that you get the subject regarding. So in an email, from to subject, in ancient letters, from to subject, in handwritten letters, it's dear so-and-so. Why are they dear to you? You Who it's from is all the way at the end. That's a crazy way to do it. Email's better, ancient letters are better. That's how it works. Yeah, but what about the players? what, What do we learn about them? Let's take a few minutes to understand something about Paul, something about Timothy, then we'll make a few observations that'll help set up the rest of the uh, series, all right? First of all, Paul. Now, we know a lot about Paul because a lot of what he did and experienced is recorded for us in the book of Acts. So beginning like in Acts chapter 7, All the way through the end of Acts, a lot of that is about Paul's life, his journeys, stuff that's happening to him, his imprisonments, his persecution, his sermons, all that stuff's in there. So we know a lot about Paul because more than half of the book of Acts kind of has Paul as the main character. We also know a lot about Paul because the New Testament contains 13 letters that he wrote. Now, some of those letters are really long, like Romans, First and Second Corinthians. Others of the letters are really short, like Second Timothy. But we have 13 of Paul's letters, and we know a whole lot about what happened to him from the book of Acts. So I could spend a lot of time talking to you about Paul. I'm going to try to refrain. I may not be completely able, so we may be late. But, but let me mention a couple things that you need to know about Paul. Paul calls himself in this letter an apostle. Now, to understand apostle, it may help you to understand capital A apostle and little a apostle, right? Capital A apostles were the 12 disciples, right? Uh, You know, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They, They were the capital A apostles. Then there were other apostles, those that the word apostle just means sent. There were others that were called in by Jesus and sent by Jesus. They would be small a apostles. Well, Paul is an apostle, and to some degree, You and I are apostles too, right? You've heard me say, and I'm going to say at the end, Jesus never calls anyone to follow that he doesn't soon send out. Come to me, go for me. Come to me, go for me. And we see that in Paul. Jesus calls him to himself and then sends him out for him. It always works that way. Paul never got over the fact that he was called in and sent out. Now, why is it important in 2 Timothy that he writes that, 
I'm an apostle called by Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Because as Paul writes to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus, where he is, he's reminding Timothy, Timothy, I don't want you to listen to what I'm saying in this book because I'm really smart. I don't want you to listen to what I say because I'm spiritual, because I have a bunch of degrees, because I study the Bible a lot. You need to listen to what I say because I'm just communicating to you what Jesus communicated to me. That's important to remember, right? It's not our degrees. It's not our education. It's not our training. It's not our expertise. What makes us passioned and apostles is that Jesus has kind of whispered something in our ear and sends us to go tell that. Well, what do we know about Paul's life? Again, I could spend a lot of time. I want to mention two things. When you read through the book of Acts, you discover two things about Paul that changed everything. The first of those is recorded in Acts chapter 7. Now, in Acts chapter 7, Paul is present as they execute Stephen. Stephen is asked before uh, the group of religious leaders, Stephen, what are you doing? You're going around bad-mouthing the temple. Who do you think you are? And then Timothy goes into a long, excuse me, Stephen goes into a long explanation about the temple. And essentially, we can boil um, Stephen's sermon down into two points. Here it is. The temple is inadequate. The temple is obsolete. And they killed him. You hear that? They're, they're the two main points of Stephen's sermon. The temple is inadequate. The temple can't make you good enough. You are so bad, you can't get a little cleansing at the temple to clean you up. The temple is inadequate to do for you what needs to be done. And the temple is obsolete. The temple's soon going to disappear. The temple has lost its luster. The temple is no longer needed. Why is the temple inadequate? Well, because sacrifices in the temple never really washed away sins. Remember the Easter sermon, right? What did Jesus do? Jesus removed our sin and guilt. They got pictures of that in the temple, but Jesus is the reality. So the temple is inadequate because it points to what Jesus did. The temple couldn't do it. Jesus did it. What else did Jesus do? He removed the distance between us and God. That was pictured in the temple, but Jesus is the reality. So all Stephen does in that sermon is to say, the temple's inadequate, and the temple's obsolete because Jesus has showed up. Since he showed up, we don't need the temple anymore. They killed Stephen for saying it. Now, here's an important thing that has always struck me. Stephen's sermon is the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts. There are a whole bunch of Paul sermons in there, little Peter, Peter sermons get in there a little bit. Stephen's is by far the longest. But Luke, the author of Acts, wasn't there when Stephen gave the sermon. How did Luke know what Stephen said? Because Luke traveled with Paul. And those ideas so burned in Paul's head and heart that he talked about them all the time. You see, Paul grew up as a Pharisee. He grew up as somebody that knew all the religious rules and he was trying to, and he thought he could be good enough by obeying the rules. But all of a sudden, Stephen says, the temple's inadequate. And Paul said, wait a minute, I've been living my whole life on that treadmill. And Stephen, you're telling me 
I will ne- I'll never be good enough by keeping the rules. What? The temple's obsolete. Paul's entire life before was revolving around the temple. And Stephen says, the temple's inadequate and obsolete. And when he tells Luke about Stephen's sermon, he does in great detail because those ideas so festered in his head and his heart, he couldn't get rid of them. Oh, yeah. And if you read through Paul's letters, those 13 letters, do you check it out? What are two things that Paul always comes back to? Here's what he comes back to. Oh, by the way, guys, the temple is inadequate and the temple is obsolete because Jesus came. Where did he hear that? He first heard it from Stephen. So what's Paul all about? That's Stephen's sermon, bird in his head and his heart and wouldn't let him go. Another incident, a couple chapters later in Acts chapter 9, changes all of that for Paul too. After Paul's a Pharisee, he becomes a persecutor. He's so ticked off at that message of Stephen. See, it doesn't sink in right away, right? Just like when you, you, know, you put your coins in a soda machine, they don't sometimes go all the way down. Well, Paul heard the Stephen sermon, but the coins didn't drop, right? You got to rock the machine and kick it a little bit. And Jesus did that a couple chapters later. So those ideas are there, but Paul is so angry He sets out on a mission of rounding up these Christians, these people that believe the temple's inadequate and obsolete. Paul rounds them up, brings them in for hearings, imprisons them, and executes them. Paul's a persecutor. But then in Acts chapter 9, he's traveling to Damascus on a mission of rounding up some more Christians there. Christians that are saying, a temple is obsolete, temple's inadequate. While he's on the way, he collides with Jesus. Bright light, knocks Paul off the horse, falls to the ground. And Jesus says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And I don't know what, probably Paul didn't say anything. He's kind of quivering in fear, but he's probably thinking, who the heck are you? I wouldn't persecute you. I'm scared of you. But you know, that idea never left Paul's heart either. Here's the message that Jesus gives to Paul on that road to Damascus. Paul, I am so closely identified and connected with my people that when you persecute them, you're persecuting me. My people and I are one. And when you mess with them, you're messing with me. Another theme as you read Paul's 13 letters is that Christians are in Christ. We're in him and he's in us and therefore we're one and we're identified together and all that Jesus accomplished is now credited to us and all of our sin has been credited to him because we are so tightly connected. We're in, in, and that makes everything different. Where did he learn that? On the road to Damascus when Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? So those two incidents from those two chapters at Acts He hears Stephen's sermon. The temple is inadequate. The temple is obsolete. He meets Jesus and Jesus says, Paul, I'm connected. I'm one with my people. Those become the themes of Paul's entire life. And the Pharisee who became a persecutor becomes a preacher who travels around taking that message to whomever will listen. That's a thumbnail sketch of Paul. Pretty exciting life, huh? Well, then we have Timothy. what, What do we know of Timothy? Well, we know a few things about Timothy. First of all, we know that Timothy came from a mixed marriage. Not mixed racially, but mixed religiously. Timothy's father was a Greek, we're told, in Acts 16. 
Timothy's mother and grandmother were Jewish. Yeah, we, they're even mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Eunice, his mom, and Lois. Whenever I think of Eunice, I think of mama's family. Remember that? Who else names their kids? There are no Eunices here, right, I'm guessing? Yeah, so we've got Eunice and Lois, and they're faithful. They have faith, and it all connected for them. What they believed about the Bible all made sense. The coins dropped when Paul was traveling on his first missionary journey. So Paul the apostle, Paul, Pharisee, becomes persecutor, preacher, begins to travel around the Mediterranean taking that message. Temple's inadequate and obsolete. Jesus identifies with his people, and everything he did can be credited to your account. That message he takes with him. On his first missionary journey, one of the towns he visits is called Lystra. That was Timothy's hometown. Now, at that point, Timothy, his mom and grandmother, are not Christians. They're Jewish. They're Jewish. Paul shows up, preaches the message from Stephen and from Jesus, gives him the message. Timothy, Lois, and Eunice believe the message. They become Christians. And so one of the the families that come to Christ on Paul's first missionary journey is Timothy's family, his mother and grandmother. They all become Christians. Well, Paul had a really good strategy. He would often return on his next missionary journey to the cities he visited on the first missionary journey just to kind of check out how everything kind of kind of do a checkup, right? When he comes back to Lystra on the second missionary journey, he discovers that Timothy has made such progress, he can't believe it, he invites Timothy to travel with him on the rest of the journey. And from that point on, in that second missionary journey, Timothy and Paul become traveling partners. In fact, many of Paul's letters, most of Paul's letters, read them carefully, are co-authored by Paul and Timothy. Paul and Timothy. It started on the first missionary journey, they become partners on the second missionary journey, and they virtually travel together through the rest of Paul's life. And that's kind of the deal. Well, the one thing I want to mention about Timothy before we move on Timothy's father was a Greek. He never, as best we can tell, never became a Christian. In fact, some believe he kind of faded from the scene since he's really not mentioned. But, you know, Timothy grew up not really knowing who he was probably, right? A little insecure. His dad's a Greek, so he doesn't fit in with all the Jewish folks, right? So he can't play with all the kids at synagogue out in the playground. His father's a Greek, so he can't really play with them over here. But his mother's His mother and grandmother are Jewish and they're devout, so we can't really hang out with the Greek kids. So Timothy never fit in. Remember I asked you a question at the beginning? What's the one flaw that Paul kind of says, Timothy, you need to work on this? It's timidity. Paul's a timid, careful, scared kind of guy. Well, that often happens when you grow up and you're not fitting in, right? So Timothy doesn't quite fit in with the Greeks. He doesn't fit in with the Jews. He doesn't know where he fits. He's going through life. He's insecure. And that becomes part of who he is and how he functions. But Paul keeps saying, Timothy, the gospel can change you from the inside out. And where you were timid and frightened, you can become courageous and brave. Good. Well, what's the situation then? Well, here's the situation. After Paul's missionary journeys, three of them, he's imprisoned for extending the gospel. And But when the book of Acts ends, Paul is in prison in Rome. But Paul is released 
from that imprisonment. The book of Acts ends, but Paul's life doesn't end. Paul's released. And as best we can tell, he travels around. Most scholars believe he eventually made it to Spain. He wanted to go to Spain, travels around the Mediterranean. But eventually he's rearrested under Nero. And this time his imprisonment isn't anything like the first one. His first imprisonment when the book of Acts ends, it's kind of a cushy imprisonment. It's kind of like when politicians get thrown in prison, right? Tennis, golf courses, you know, play games, hang out together, kind of like that. His second imprisonment, not so nice. His second imprisonment, he's in a dungeon. It's damp, it's dark, it's cold. He's chained to a guard 24-7. The guards rotate shifts, Paul stays. Paul's freezing cold. Back then they didn't supply blankets and clothing and stuff for you. If your friends didn't bring them, you went without. It's that imprisonment from which Paul writes this letter. In fact, here's the situation. Paul says, hey, Timothy, come to me quickly. Bring some clothes. Bring some blankets. I'm freezing. Bring the parchments. Bring the scrolls. Bring the scripture to me. I want to read it. Timothy, come and visit me. I'm all alone here. I long to see you, my faithful friend. Timothy, I know I will soon be executed. Please do these things quickly. I don't have much longer to live. And tradition tells us that under Nero, one day soon after he wrote this letter, they came to Paul's prison cell and they took him out. And he took him out to the main highway because Romans like to do things in ways that would deter other people from those crimes. And Paul was beheaded on the highway. As people watched, he gave his life. That's the situation. Well, what are some lessons from these first couple of verses that we need to tease out? Well, I want to mention a few. We, we could do a lot, and we'll pick up more over the next few weeks. But let's uh, do a couple of lessons. Here's the first one, and maybe the most important one. The nouns tell the story. The nouns tell the story. Let's go to the next lesson. No, no. <laughs> what the heck does that mean? Well, here's what it means. When you read through 2 Timothy, you'll notice that some nouns, right, subjects, come up over and over and over and over again. So let me mention to you the nouns that are most often mentioned and tell you how many times they're mentioned. And this is going to be important. Here we go. The word Lord is mentioned 16 times. Only four little chapters, 16 times. The word God, 13 times. The word Jesus, 13 times. The word Christ, 13 times. The word faith, nine times. Then there's a big drop-off before you get to the words mentioned after that. Now, why is that interesting? Because we often live life as if it revolves around us. Here's Paul writing his last letter. He's about to check out, and he writes about the Lord. He writes about God. He writes about Jesus Christ, and he writes about faith in him. It's amazing, isn't it? We often live life as if it's all about our story, but it's not our story. In fact, let me say it this way. The Bible is not primarily about us. The Bible's not about you. How do we say it when we talk about the story? The Bible is the multifaceted narrative of God's story that finds its climax in Jesus. If you make the story about you, you pervert the story. The Bible is God's story. 
Now, he graciously and lovingly includes us in his story, but it's his story. It's not our story. And you mix it up. All right, here's the second point. Calvary Church is not primarily about you. And Calvary Church is not primarily about me. Calvary Church is about Jesus Christ, God, Savior, and faith in him. Calvary Church is not about us. It's about him and about others that aren't yet part of Calvary Church. You know, the church is the only organization in the world, not Calvary, all churches. The church is the only organization in the world that exists for the benefit of people that are not members. Isn't that right? The problem is, we're so unused to that that we make church about its members. No, 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 no. The church is an organization that has as its primary focus and benefit those that are not its members. But we're so used to having everything about us being members of organizations that before we know it, we want to make church about us. It's not about us. Church is about God. Church is about Jesus. Church is about the Lord. Church is about faith. That's what Calvary Church is about, and that's what the church is to be about. And when we make it about us, not about him and how people can have faith in him, we pervert what God's doing. So what are we about? We want people to ever hear a relevant explanation of the gospel and experience a lived-out application of the gospel, and nobody's on the bench for that deal. We're all on the playing field speaking words of relevance to people about God, the Lord, Jesus, Christ, faith, and we're living out an application of that message. The Bible's not primarily our story. Calvary Church is not our story about us. The Bible's about God's story, and Calvary Church needs to be about Jesus' story, not us. That's tough to take, right? Just look at the nouns. The nouns tell you the story. How many times does Paul get mentioned? Just once or twice. How many times does Timothy get mentioned? Ah, just a couple times. How many times does Jesus get mentioned? 13 times. How many times does God get mentioned? 13 times. Is that how you live? Is that how we function as a church? The nouns tell the story. Let's make sure we tell the story. Second lesson kind of relates to that. In spite of circumstances, whatever they may be, we need to be confident. It's kind of amazing, right? Um, and, and maybe I'm just a whiner, complainer. Somebody's shaking your head, yeah, right? Uh, and maybe I am. But if I'm in prison and I'm being mistreated and my circumstances aren't just difficult, they're painful. I'm not writing a letter of confidence. I'm not talking about Timothy's needs. I'm not sharing. I'm not being very thankful. Timothy's not the focus of the letter. I'm writing a letter of complaint. That's what I'm writing. And my first line of complaint goes like this. You know, God, what the heck are you doing? I was a persecutor. Now I'm a preacher. I left my mission of persecuting Christians to become a preacher. Now I'm a missionary, and what happens? I get arrested. I get beaten. I get stoned. Now I'm in prison again. Lord, do you know what you're doing? Can't you see? I've been faithful. I've been doing what you wanted me to do, and what do I get? This gig's not worth it. Wouldn't you write that? Well, you maybe wouldn't write it, but you'd think it, wouldn't you? Paul doesn't write it or think it. Okay, maybe Paul doesn't have the guts to, to complain about God. I'd certainly complain about the church, right? I'd complain, hey, guys, remember, I sacrificed to be there and preach all those really good sermons for you, 
I was there. I didn't take any of your money. I worked with my hands and supplied my needs and the needs of other people. Where are you guys? Nobody comes to visit me. I'm here. I'm freezing to death. I'm shivering at night. You think you could send a blanket or a coat? Nobody sends me anything. You ungrateful group, right? Or complain about your family. Now, we know Paul was not married, but where's his siblings? Like, where's his parents? Are they gone by now? Where are his nieces and nephews? I haven't, Bobby and Susie, I haven't seen you guys for a long time. Don't you think you could stop by and sing Uncle Paul for a little while here? Nobody's here with me. I've got this stinky, smelly guard next to me all day, and I don't see a familiar face. I don't see anybody speaking words of nothing. Isn't that where you would be? That's where I would be. But that's not the letter Paul writes. Paul writes a letter of confidence. He's confident, not in his circumstances. He's confident in God. He's confident in God's promises. He's thankful for what God's done. And the whole letter is an encouraging note to someone else. I don't know about you, but when life gets hard, my focus becomes on me. When circumstances got hard for Paul, his focus was on God and on those he could minister to with whatever time he had left. I found a really good quote a couple weeks ago. Dallas Willard has lots of good quotes. Here's my favorite. If you like quotes, this is a good one. Here we go. Dallas Willard writes, Hey, I found God's address. Wouldn't you want to know where God lives? Hey, I found God's address. It's at the end of my rope. Isn't that good? Hey, I found God's address. It's at the end of my rope. Paul's at the end of his rope, the end of his life. But you know what? He's confident. He's trusting God and God's promises. He's thankful for all that he's been able to experience, and he's thankful for the glorious future that awaits him. And with whatever time and energy he's got left, he's encouraging and he's motivating younger people, Timothy, to keep going and live the way he lived, putting everything in second place to Jesus. That's not bad, huh? Pretty tough guy. How about another lesson? Gifts are like muscles. Exercise them. Timothy writes, or excuse me, Paul writes to Timothy, fan into flame your gifts. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a few questions to prove this point. Gifts are like muscles. They need to be exercised. How many of you have done any mulching yet this year? Raise your hands. All right, good. good. Now that you're done, you come to my house. All right, <laughs> mulching. How many of you have been to a driving range or played around a golf yet? You haven't played much this year. Okay, got some golfers. All right, how many of you have been out for a hike, but you were locked up indoors a lot recently? Have you been out for a run, a bike ride? Okay, good. How many of you were sore after you did any of those activities? Yeah, yeah. Why is that? because you sat on your butt all winter. That's why. You laid on the couch like a vegetable, and you're watching, and all of a sudden you get up and you go mulch your sore the next morning, right? You swing a golf club, you haven't done anything for three months, all of a sudden those muscles aren't working. You go for a walk, you go ride your bike, and your muscles are hurting the next day. That's because if you don't use those muscles, they begin to decay, they begin to weaken, and soon they atrophy. Paul says, gifts work the same way. You, lose, you use them or you lose them. You exercise them or they weaken. So whatever gifts God's given you, whatever amount of faith you have right now, 
I'll tell you, the only way to grow that faith is to live at the edge of that faith. So if God's trusting you to do X, then do X. And as you do X, you'll have enough faith to do X plus Y. And as you do X plus Y, you'll be able to do X plus Y plus Z. It's the exercise of your faith that'll give you more faith. You don't sit and wait till you have faith. You live at the edge of your faith, and that's how your faith grows. How about when it comes to giving? You want to be generous? Don't wait until you feel generous to be generous. You'll never give anybody anything. Live at the edge of your generosity. And when you live at the edge of your generosity, God will encourage you and replenish and reward you, maybe in a different currency, and your generosity will grow as you live in generosity. If your gift is in administration or service, leadership, teaching, whatever your gifts are, whatever time and energy you have, how do you grow and develop those things? You live at the edge of them. I was at the gym this past week, and I was talking to another guy, and he said, uh, his brother is a physical therapist. And he said, my brother-in-law always has these break-your-heart kind of stories. Because people show up to the physical therapist and their muscles and bones and stuff have atrophied because they haven't done anything for decades. And he said, you know what? If you don't exercise your arms and your legs, your muscles and your bones, your joints for a long period of time, you won't be able to use them soon. That's what Paul says about gifts. That's what he says about time and resources and money. What you have, use it. Put it into play. That's how you develop it and become stronger. Oh, yeah, and remember, the gifts we have are to serve and benefit others. They're not for our own benefit. You don't serve and exercise your gifts so people applaud. You don't serve and exercise your gift for what you get. You serve putting them into play for their benefit. Just like Willie and the poor boys, right? They play for the benefit. Yes, there's even an offering in that song. Bring your nickels. Um, but, but as we do that, that works for the benefit of others. Exercise whatever gifts you have. And last lesson. Sustain a sincere faith. There's the commendation. What does Paul say to Timothy? Timothy, you know what? You got this little character flaw. You're a timid little sucker. Be courageous. Step out. Do it. Live at the edge of your faith. Fan those gifts into flame. But Timothy, I have one commendation. Your faith is sincere. Now, we lose what Paul's saying because the word sincere does not reflect the antonym the way it does in Greek. The Greek word for sincere is not a hypocrite. Timothy, I commend you because you're not a hypocrite. Now, hypocrites were not nasty religious people back then. The word hypocrite just meant they were performers in a play. So here's something we may come back to later on. Timothy is serving in Ephesus. Now, think about this. How many years ago, right? Ephesus had a theater in the first century that held 24,000 people. No microphones, no amplification. 24,000 people would go and watch a play in Ephesus. That, that's where Timothy is. So Paul writes to Timothy, Timothy, don't be a performer. Everybody in Ephesus is always going to the theater. Don't be a performer. Don't be an actor. Don't wear a mask. And Timothy, I applaud you for having sincere faith, for not being a hypocrite, understanding who you are, understanding who Jesus is, and transacting what he did for you by faith. Sincere faith. Brings us right back to Easter Sunday, doesn't it? Because that's where it all flows to. 
and all flows from. On Easter weekend, Jesus removes our sin and guilt. On Easter weekend, Jesus removes the distance between us and God. And in order to accept that, you need to admit that you're inadequate and not good enough, just like Timothy did. It's faith. It's not in himself. It's faith in what Jesus has done. That's what makes the difference. So how about you? You have a sincere faith or a hypocritical faith? Do you pretend because it's the right thing to do or what you're going to get? Are you performing or are you living authentically and genuinely? Well, the band's going to come out. We're going to end with a song. But if you would, join me as we pray. Father, we give you thanks for this letter and for just the little bit that we know about the characters in it. Lord, we don't follow Paul and we don't follow Timothy. We follow Jesus. But we can learn a little bit about what following Jesus is like by looking at how Paul did it, by looking at how Timothy did it, and looking at the change that you brought in their lives. Lord, I pray that those observations and lessons wouldn't just be tucked away in a book somewhere, but that as we work our way through this letter, written by an old mentor about ready to check out, to a young pastor about ready to begin, wherever we are on that spectrum, help us to learn the lessons and follow Jesus more closely. We pray in his name.